Hi, my name is Brian, and I'm the lead pastor at Grand Valley Church. We hope that this message helps you explore faith and connect with Jesus. Today is Easter Sunday. It's the day that we set aside in the calendar year, even though we celebrate Jesus' resurrection every time we gather, and it's a part of our faith. Today on Easter Sunday is a day that we dedicate to kind of focusing on this. And so today we're going to be talking about what Jesus accomplished and what it did for us and our faith and our relationship with God because of what Jesus came to earth to do. And what Jesus did is he made it possible for us to live in a relationship with God that that is deeper and more intimate and close together than what was ever available to humanity before. But Jesus spent three years of ministry with his closest friends, with a group of disciples, and there was a group of 12, and there was a larger group of about 72, and at times it describes a group of around a couple hundred, and then there was even like larger crowds that followed him at different various points of his ministry. But his closest group, the 12 disciples, they had been with Jesus since the beginning of his ministry, since just after his baptism. And so they had seen and witnessed everything that Jesus had done. But even they, when Jesus told them that he was going to die, that he was going to be killed by the religious leaders, and that he would rise from the grave again, even his own disciples, his closest friends, they didn't understand or they didn't believe that that's what would really happen. Peter is kind of known for famously when when Jesus tells him that he's going to die, Peter says, no, no, that's never going to happen. That can't happen to you. And Jesus has to rebuke him for it. And then on the last evening that Jesus had with his disciples, he tells them again plainly that he is going to die and that he will be resurrected, that he will come back. And Peter makes this declaration and he says, no, 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 that's not going to happen. Certainly I will go with you. I will die with you. And Jesus turns to Peter, the closest of his disciples. And Jesus answers him to this. And we pick this up from John 13. Jesus answers, die for me? I tell you the truth, Peter, before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny me three times that you know me. Jesus tells Peter this, that Peter is going to deny him. And sure enough, later that evening, when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he gets betrayed by one of his disciples, who the scriptures leave kind of open and vague whether Judas actually knew what he was doing in that moment. In fact, it seems there's a lot of evidence pointing to that Judas actually thought that he was setting off, that he was going to be this catalyst moment that would set off the conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders that would force Jesus to claim his status as Messiah and overthrow the temple and overthrow Rome and create this kingdom that they were longing for. But that wasn't Jesus' plan. Jesus' plan went much deeper and much further and was much more impactful than what even his own closest disciples thought about him. And so Jesus goes and he is arrested and he's put on trial and the trial is completely corrupt. They have to fabricate witnesses against him. The religious leaders want Jesus killed because they just want to end his movement. They just want to end this madness that they're saying is these people believing that Jesus is the Messiah, but they don't have the authority to kill him. And so they go to Pilate, and Pilate tries to send Jesus to Herod and pass the buck on making the decision about whether to kill him, and then Herod sends him back to Pilate, and so Pilate has to make this decision. And he tries to free Jesus. He tries to let Jesus go because he says, even this isn't true. There is no basis. Why are we killing 
this man from Galilee just because he's upsetting the religious leaders. But the crowds demand it, and Pilate, scared of a riot happening, bows to the pressure of the crowd and orders Jesus to be executed. And even at his execution, only one of his disciples comes to witness it and be there. John, not even Peter. But leading up to that, Peter, just as Jesus predicted, denied three times that he had ever known Jesus. And so on the third day, on Easter Sunday, what we celebrate today, Jesus rises from the grave just as he promised, but even his closest friends didn't expect it. His disciples were in hiding. They were hiding from the religious leaders. They were hiding from the crowds. And so on the morning, two women, the two Marys, go to the garden where Jesus' body was laid and where a stone was put in front of the tomb, and they go there. We're going to pick this up from Luke 24, where it says, Early on Sunday morning, the women went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. They found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance, so they went in, but they didn't find the body of Jesus. Now, if we don't understand their first century burial customs, we don't understand why were they taking spices to the tomb, but in first century Judea, the burial practice was that you would lay a body in a tomb, and you would anoint it with spices and perfumes, and you would actually let the body decompose on a stone slab. And a year later, you would go and gather the bones together and place the bones in the box, and you would carve a niche in the wall of the cave, and you would place that box of bones. And that's the way they would care for their dead. And so when these two women go to the tomb, they're not going expecting the tomb to be empty. They are going to grieve and to carry out their burial rites and their practice. They are going to anoint and care for his body, but they don't have a plan for what they're going to do about the stone. But when they arrive, the stone is gone, the guards have disappeared, and they don't understand. But as they stood there puzzled, two men suddenly appeared with them clothed in dazzling robes. And the women were terrified and bowed with their faces to the ground. The men asked, why are you looking among the dead for someone who is alive? He isn't here. He has risen from the dead. Remember what he told you back in Galilee. These two women got to be the first witnesses of the resurrection. They got to be the first messengers that Jesus had done what he had said he would do. And so they go back and tell the disciples that this has happened. And they don't believe them at first. They don't believe these two women. And so two of the disciples, they run to the tomb and they see the tomb is empty. And even only then, they start to understand, wait a second, maybe Jesus was right. Maybe he actually did what he said he was going to do. See, the empty tomb was a surprise even to Jesus' followers. No one expected that Jesus was going to be right when he predicted his own death and resurrection. In fact, the funny part of the gospel accounts of Jesus' life is there's only one group that took it seriously that Jesus would rise from the grave And that was the religious leaders that had him killed. And so they convinced Pilate to go and send guards to stand at the tomb. And when the tomb rolled away, these guards fainted. They ran from their posts. They left their posts. They went back to the religious leaders. They went back to the meeting of the elders and they said, what do we do? Now, they didn't go back to their commanding officer. They went to the Jewish leaders. And here's what the Jewish leaders told them to do. They said in Matthew 28 verse 12, it says, a meeting with the elders was called and they decided to give the soldiers a large bribe. They told the soldiers, you must say, 
Jesus' disciples came during the night when they were sleeping and they stole his body. Now that must have been one massive bribe. Because of what we know about Roman centurions and Roman guards is the penalty for deserting your post was usually death or pretty close to death. Flogging, demotion, these guys were willing to take a bribe to lie and say that's the reason. But these two soldiers, so they were overpowered by a group of fishermen? That doesn't make sense, does it? Two soldiers should have been able to hold them off. And so they start this lie that the disciples must have stolen his body. And some people even today think that, they think, well, the only reason that we can say for the resurrection is, well, the disciples came and stole the body. But if that were true, let's run that a little bit. If that were true, why were the disciples willing to die for Jesus if they would have known that it was a lie? Why would all but one of the disciples end up being executed for their faith if they knew it was a lie that they had stolen Jesus' body? And furthermore, if they hadn't stolen Jesus' body and his body was still in the tomb, the religious leaders could have at any moment rolled away the stone, pulled out the body, and paraded around the body and say, look, here he is. He's dead. He's not risen. See, when we look at the resurrection accounts and we look at everything that happened around it, The logical conclusion is that Jesus actually did what he said he was going to do. He actually pulled off his own resurrection. And so one of the things the resurrection teaches us right at the beginning is that it tangibly demonstrates that Jesus will follow through on his promises. When Jesus makes a promise, when Jesus makes a claim, he's going to pull it off. He's going to follow through. It may not happen in the way that we expect it will, but the resurrection demonstrates this. But there's something bigger and there's something deeper underneath the resurrection. And there's what the resurrection demonstrates and creates in us and creates for us is it is a demonstration of God's love and his desire to have a vibrant and alive relationship with us. What God accomplished through his death and resurrection, through Jesus coming into the world of teaching and leading and then giving up his body and resurrecting again, is this was all for the purpose of God creating a deeper relationship with us. God's love for us led him to make a new covenant, a new way, a new way of this relationship happening between us and God that exists even today, that we as the church, we celebrate at Easter, that we have this new covenant, that we have this relationship with Jesus. Now, When we talk about Easter, oftentimes we talk about sin. We talk about sin being anything that separates us from God and that sin was dealt with at the cross. And the reason for that needing is that leading up to this point, for people to have a relationship with God, there was always an intermediary. There was a priest that served as the kind of the go-between between God and the people. And their entire Jewish faith was built around the temple and the priesthood being the mediators of that relationship between God and humanity. And when God himself steps into the world, when he comes and he lays down his life as a sacrifice, he is creating a new way for this to happen. And oftentimes when we look at Easter, we look at Good Friday, we think that it was all about sin, but it's actually about something much bigger than that. And I want to quote from a a professor of theology from Northern Seminary in Illinois, who in, he writes it and he describes it this way. He says, but when you step back and look at the entire story of the Bible, we find that our sin problem is not the main problem. 
Rather, we find that there is a presence problem, that humanity has lost access to the presence of God. And this is what the entire law and the writings of the prophets, the Hebrew scriptures that make up our Old Testament, are talking about is this issue of presence. How does humanity restore and get back to the presence in the relationship with God? And that's what Jesus came to do, was to restore this presence of relationship. Now, dealing with sin had to happen. That was part of it. But sin was the barrier that had to be overcome so that the relationship of presence could happen. And so when we look at the resurrection, when we look at the writings of Scripture, when we look at the whole narrative of our theology from beginning to end, God's primary purpose in Jesus' death and resurrection was making it possible for God to have a relational presence with all humanity. Dealing with sin at the cross was the means to the end. It was the method by which God is able to live in presence with us, for us to have the relationship with him that we desire. And I want to rewind, and I want to go all the way back to one of the earliest books of the Bible, and to dive into this a little bit, to help us understand why it is that God chose to do this. And so we're going to go all the way back to the book of Leviticus. And the book of Leviticus is one of the books of the, the, the Torah law, one of the first five books of the Bible. And Leviticus is a compilation and codification of the law. And the law, anytime we look at the law, the law set the boundaries and kind of the terms of relationship for the ancient Israelites and their relationship with God. And part of a feature of the law and a large portion of it was their sacrificial system, was the practice of animal sacrifice as an intermediary to bring that presence of God and that relationship to happen. And so I want to read a couple verses from Leviticus. We're going to dive in to understand this so that we can see the parallels to what Jesus has done for us. And so if we go all the way back to Leviticus 1, verse 4, it says this. It says, lay your hand on the animal's head. So when you're bringing an animal to be sacrificed, it had to be a male animal completely without blemish. You would bring this animal to the temple. And the instructions given were to lay your hand on the animal's head and the Lord will accept its death in your place to purify you, making you right with him. Now, I want you to notice something that's not in that verse. It was not a transference of sin. It was not viewed as the Israelite was, you know, placing their sin on the animal and the animal was dying in their place. What this instead was, is this was about a purification of what was unclean being made clean so that it could be in the presence of God's holiness in that relationship. And so when they would place their hand on the animal's head, they're recognizing that the sacrifice is what makes them ritually clean before God. And the entire law was divided into what is clean and what is unclean, what is in the presence of God and what is not in the presence of God. And so the sacrificial system was actually not viewed as a transference or punishment of sin. It was a cleansing action. But there was one day of the year that was special. There was one day of the year on their calendar where things worked a little different, and that's the Day of Atonement. And that was the day when the high priest would go through a special purification ritual. It would be extensive. They would prepare for months and weeks leading up to the Day of Atonement because on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would do something special and unique that only the high priest of Israel could do. And that is to go inside the most central chamber of the tabernacle at first, and then later when the tabernacle was replaced by the temple, 
both the tabernacle and the temple had a place in the center, a curtained off room that was known as the most holy place. It was the physical representation of God's presence being with his people in this place. And the high priest could only enter once per year. And in fact, some of the writings of the time say that what they would do is they would tie a rope to the ankle of the high priest. Because if he had gone in there and he had not gone through the process properly, they believed he would be struck dead immediately because he wouldn't be able to withstand the weight of God's holiness and presence in that place. And they're like, well, we can't leave a body in there. So they would tie a rope to his ankle so they could drag him out if he didn't come out and he was killed by God's presence is what they believed and what they practiced. And so on the Day of Atonement, leading up to the high priest stepping into this place that was the pinnacle of God's presence with his people, they would pick two goats and one goat would be killed as a sacrifice and the second goat would have a special purpose. And Leviticus 16 tells us this. It says, when Aaron, who was the first high priest, when Aaron has finished purifying the most holy place and the tabernacle and the altar, he must present the live goat. He will lay both of his hands, notice before it was only one, he will lay both of his hands on the goat's head and confess over it all the wickedness, rebellion, and sins of the people of Israel. On the Day of Atonement, this goat would be viewed as a symbolic transference of everything that could ever separate people from God's presence would be placed on this goat. It says this way, in this way, he will transfer people's sin to the head of the goat. Then a man specifically chosen for the task will drive the goat into the wilderness. Could you imagine if that was your job title? I'm the goat chaser. My job on the day of atonement is to chase the goat from the temple through Jerusalem out into the wilderness far away from anyone else. But that's what they did with this goat, this goat that all of sin, everything that separated God's people from God, is placed on an animal and driven out to the wilderness. And so what that means when we look at these two passages in parallel is outside of the Day of Atonement, the sacrificial system was about faithfulness to the covenant and becoming ritually clean so that you could remain connected to God. It was all about covenantal faithfulness about being able to be in that relationship with God. And so when we look at the sacrificial system and we look at the parallels of what Jesus did, how Jesus willingly went to his death on our behalf, Jesus' sacrifice and death on the cross was significantly more than dealing with sin. It was a purification of humanity, making it possible for us to step into a relationship with God without needing an intermediary. Because Christ himself is that intermediary. And when we think about this, when we think about the sacrificial system, oftentimes, let's be honest, we're a little repulsed by it. We think that seems a little barbaric. That seems a little kind of dark. But we have to understand that our imagery and symbolism that we have around blood today is actually very different from what the ancient Israelites believed. When we think of the spilling of blood, we think of it as an image of death. We think of it as an image of destruction. But Leviticus paints a very different picture. It says this in Leviticus 17, still as it carries on talking about the Day of Atonement, it says, for the life of the body is in its blood. And I've given you the blood on the altar to purify you, making you right with the Lord. It is the blood given exchange for life that makes purification possible. 
in an ancient Israelite perspective, in the perspective of the law, the Hebrew scriptures, the Torah, blood equals life. And so they understood this not as death has to happen so that we can have a relationship. They said it is life in the blood that makes it possible for us to be purified and have that relationship with God. Instead, we could reread that last sentence of that and say it is the life in the blood given in exchange for a life that makes a purification possible. It is life for life, not death for life. It is the resurrection of Jesus as he takes up his life that makes the purification of us as his followers possible. And that's why when Jesus is speaking to a group in the Gospel of John, he says this, he says, the Father loves me because I sacrificed my life so I may take it back again. No one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily. For I have the authority to lay down when I want to and to be able to take it up again. For this is what my Father has commanded. Jesus is demonstrating this perspective that it is his life laid down and his life picked up which makes it possible for us to have that relationship with Jesus. And so, when Jesus is arrested and he's taken to a trial, he allows a corrupt trial to render an unjust guilty verdict so that the sacrifice of his life would invite all of humanity into a relationship with God. At any point through his trial, Jesus could have spoken up and ended it. He could have pointed out their unjust methods of having the trial. He could have pointed out their fabricated witnesses but he didn't. And he didn't because he knew that giving up his life only to take it back up again and what it would accomplish for us. And there's two things in scripture that give more evidence to this understanding. And the first one is something that happens at the exact moment when Jesus died on the cross. And so Matthew 27 writes and tells us this. He says, then Jesus shouted out again and he released his spirit as he hung on the cross. At that moment, the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That's that curtain that separated the most holy place that represented God's physical presence with humanity that only the high priest could go into on the Day of Atonement after weeks of preparation has been torn in two from top to bottom. The fact that it's torn from top to bottom is an important part of that because it is God himself who is tearing the curtain open. And the Greek on this, actually, when it says torn, it talks about torn in a way that can never be mended. It is destroyed in a way that the curtain can never be put back together to separate God's presence from his people. And so that's what Jesus' sacrifice accomplished. As he lays down his life, he draws us into life with God. And the second thing that Jesus did that I think gives us evidence to this and draws us into this understanding of relationship being the purpose of Easter is something that Jesus does a little later. And so after Jesus' death and resurrection, there's this time period of 40 days when Jesus keeps appearing to his followers. And he appears to them and he proves that it's him and he speaks to them. But it's only after those 40 days that he ascends to heaven and then later on, we get the beginning of Acts with the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit arrives, but we're not going to get to that today. And so one of these times in this 40-day window, the disciples, they don't really know what to do. 
they're kind of left floundering, struggling a little. What do we do with this? And so Peter decides to return to fishing. So Peter and six of the disciples take their boat and they go out fishing all night long. And they go fishing all night long and they don't catch anything. So maybe it's like some of our Manitoba lakes out there in the Sea of Galilee. But as they're out there fishing, they don't catch anything. They're probably feeling, I mean, if you go fishing, you know, it's a little demoralizing when you go all day, you know, you go all night, you haven't caught anything. And that morning, something happens. And we pick this up from John 21. It says, at dawn, Jesus was standing on the beach, but the disciples couldn't see who he was. He called out, fellows, have you caught any fish? Like, he's kind of like rubbing some salt in the wound in this, I think, a little bit. Like, the scripture doesn't say this, but I kind of think Jesus is being a little cheeky when he says this. He's bugging them a bit. Maybe. I don't know. That's my interpretation of it. I could be wrong. And they call out, no, they reply. And so Jesus says, well, throw your net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you'll get some. And so they did. And they couldn't haul the net in because there was so many fish. Now, if we think back to when Jesus called Peter and some of his disciples, it was in a boat. And he told them to lay down their nets in the middle of the morning at a time when typically fish weren't biting. And they hauled up a massive catch of fish then. And so Peter realizes something in that moment. He clues in that that's Jesus standing on the shore because only Jesus could do that. And so Peter abandons the other disciples. He just hops right off the boat and swims to shore ahead of the other disciples. And the other disciples have to row the boat and drag this net of fish in. And so when they arrive to the shore, Jesus has breakfast cooking for them already. And he invites them to come and eat with them and they sit together and they share a meal. And after breakfast, Jesus speaks to Peter and he has something to say to him. He says, after breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied, you know I love you. And Jesus gives him a command. He says, then feed my lambs. And then Jesus asks Peter again, do you love me more than these? Peter replies, yes. And Jesus says, then feed my lambs. And then Jesus asks him again a third time, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replies. And Jesus tells him, then feed my lambs. Jesus makes Peter state three times that he is willing to follow Jesus, that he is willing to take on this task, this this commandment to feed my lambs, to carry on as a shepherd, to care for the flock. And the reason Jesus does this is this is not rubbing it in Peter's face over denying him three times. This is an act of restoration. Peter denied Jesus three times. And then Jesus gives him the opportunity to affirm three times that he is willing to follow Jesus. That he is willing to take on the task that Jesus gave him previously of when he renamed Peter, Peter, because before his name was Simon. When he renames Peter, he says, you will be the rock upon which I build my church. Jesus is restoring Peter into relationship with him, undoing the three denials so that they can have a relationship, so that Peter can carry forward and carry out the task that Jesus has given him. And so at Easter, we celebrate the creation of that new covenant, and we celebrate the restored relationship that we can have with God because of what he has done for us. God is inviting us into community at Easter. 
And every time we look at the Easter narrative, every time we celebrate what God has done for us, every time we remember his sacrifice and his resurrection, that is a moment when God is inviting us into a relationship with him. A relationship that doesn't require a sacrificial system anymore. And in fact, when the temple gets destroyed in 70 AD, a little less than 40 years after Jesus' death, The animal sacrificial system of Judaism is laid to rest because they don't have the temple. They don't have the physical presence of God. And so they understand, no, now now we can have the relationship with God being with us as well. But that is what Jesus calls us into. A new covenant, a new way of understanding our faith, and this restored relationship where we have access to God at any moment through Jesus. That when we pray, we know God hears. When we ask, we know he listens. When we need strength, we know God is there. And as a community of faith, we live out that restored covenant relationship as we live in community with one another. The disciples lived as a community. And the early church lived as communities that spread throughout the known world. And within 300 years, a third of the Roman Empire had pledged their trust. To Jesus. Because this is what Easter accomplishes. It's this invitation that as we are purified by Jesus' sacrifice, as we receive forgiveness, it is the invitation into relationship that Jesus has done for us. So let me just close our service with a prayer. God, thank you that you came to earth, that you saw fit to put on human flesh to come into our world both fully man, fully divine, to make a way for us to be in a relationship with you. The relationship with you that you have always desired and always longed for and now invite us into. And so God, we thank you for that, that all we have to do is put our trust in you and accept your forgiveness, your mercy, your grace. And in that we find your presence. And so, God, I pray for each one of us here today, for each one of us listening online or later on demand or to the podcast, that we would experience your presence with us as we reflect on Easter, that we would experience your closeness to us in our relationship with you. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you know of someone that would benefit from hearing the message you just listened to, would you do us a favor and share this podcast with them? And while you're at it, please consider subscribing to be the first to hear when our podcast is updated. If you want to join in on Sundays, our services are streaming online at 11 a.m. Central. To find out more about our church, go to mygrandvalley.ca and you can also find us on Instagram and Facebook by searching for My Grand Valley. Thanks for listening. Thank you.